You are listening to the In Context Podcast. And welcome to the In Context Podcast. This week's episode features a friend of ours, Jeremy Marshall. He's a former banker. He lives in Kent in the south of England, and he's involved in supporting lots of ministries, including our work up north in Middlesbrough. So, Jeremy, it's great to have you on board. How are you doing? I'm good, Ian. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for giving us your time this morning. And just for our listeners who don't know you, can you just explain a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So first of all, what was it that you, you you used to do in banking? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I used to work in uh, in banking. I was uh, chief executive of a family-owned private bank um, that's uh, been around for 350 years called Seahor & Co., and um, I spent my career dealing with very wealthy people, which is uh, maybe the opposite end of the spectrum than to what we're talking about today. But that was a really interesting experience. I worked all over the world, dealing with some of the world's um, wealthiest people. And then my last job, um, yeah, was uh, this fantastic family-owned private bank. It's the 12th generation of family ownership. And it was a beautiful building. Um, still is a beautiful building in um, in Fleet Street, where the bank's been since 1690. It's got courtyards, fountains, old masters. I imagine pretty similar to your office in. <laughs> yeah, almost. So, uh, how did you get into banking? What for, and and what is the problem with banking for for a lot of people, the middle class people who 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 know you often when they talk about you there's an apology for being a banker yeah, why yeah, the bankers right. get such a bad press yeah well originally bankers had a really good press in fact there's a, a program by ian hislop the editor of private eye called when bankers were good so in the 19th century and even up until maybe the second world war bankers were noted for their warm-heartedness and philanthropy mm. um including the hall family for example who are who are firmly behind um, people like Wilberforce and the anti-slave trade movement. And um, bankers were, yeah, if, if you go to, for example, we'll come on to my cancer treatment in a minute, but the the, the hospital I go to, the Royal, the Royal Marsden, a lot of the wards are named after bankers who gave money for the, for the, for the, for the hospital in the first place in, in the 19th century. But yeah, I'm afraid money corrupts, right? And what happened was then, especially after Big Bang, when the you know deregulation occurred, was that um, yeah, a lot a lot of banks got preoccupied with just making money, and they forgot you know the object of the exercise, which is to serve the customer. Um, how how did I get into it? Um, well, my father was a pastor, right? So they're usually uh, pastors' sons are usually the most trouble, and. Uh, I, I, to be honest, Ian, I just wanted to make some money. I didn't grow up with any money. I, my father was for 50 years pastor in a kind of fairly blue collar town. Um, and uh, I thought it would be nice to get some money. And my father told me actually, when I started work age 22, that um, I was making a lot more than he was at the time, <laughs> aged, age 55. My father was a real character. He used to take us every summer Bible smuggling behind the Iron Curtain. So that gave me a real interest in pastors and supporting people in, in troubled times. So I've kind of continued with, with that um, up, up until this day. And I, I do have a soft heart for, for pastors. Um, my father used to say, uh, people used to ask, ask him, did you ever think of resigning? And he said, once a month for 30 years. So I know what it's like to be a pastor. <laughs> uh, so he must have been a strong character to just think about it once a month. I think about it most days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. He was a lot tougher than you, Ian. 
Oh, brilliant. Well, you've just mentioned there, Jeremy, that you go to a hospital for, for cancer treatment. What what happened there then? When were you diagnosed? Yeah, so um, eight years ago, Ian, I, I found a lump and turned out it was a rare type of cancer, but I thought it was treatable. So I went through treatment and then for two years, everything went back to normal. And then nearly six years ago, I found another lump. And this time they said, look, you know, there's not a great deal we can do. Um, yeah, you've probably only got 18 months to live. So um, I had to stop work immediately. I never went back to the office from one day to the next. And um, what's been amazing is, though, that, yeah, a couple of things. One, God's really opened a, a way through my suffering to, to tell other people about him. And, um, yeah, this last year, I guess it shows how desperate churches are. But I've done about 110 evangelistic Zoom calls, talk, just talking about the Lord, talking about hope in the face of death. I even appeared at halftime on a pitch just before lockdown in a Premier League match <laughs> at Vicarage Road, my my home team and could speak for a couple of minutes about the Lord. So, you know, things that never ever would have been possible without having cancer. I've written a couple of books as well, Beyond the Big Sea and Hope in the Face of Suffering, both of which are books designed to give away to non-Christians, both of which, by the way, I'm happy to give to free to, to churches in deprived areas to send me an email. And I've sent quite a few out already. As long as you, the only condition is you have to give them away to non-Christians, right? That's what they're written. That's what they're written for. And then the other thing that's happened, Ian, is, um, yeah, it's freed up some time um, in between treatment. I've been through intensive treatment. I've had um, heart problems. I've had eye problems. You name it, I've had it. <clears throat> but when I'm not being treated, then I've got some spare time and capacity. So, um, yeah, I've been able to get involved in helping churches in deprived areas in various ways. And um, just in general, also trying to promote Christian philanthropy, you know, promoting that Christians give, give money away to, uh, to gospel work. Awesome and yeah, a, a, a great example of a faith. Uh, I think an, another example of how just because you're not a minister or a pastor full time, that that doesn't exclude you from uh, being a gospel minister in in your spare time. And and what's encouraged me is is you you came and preached for New Life Church last year. I think you were our first guest preacher online. And that's something that we are wanting to encourage is that whether you are working in a bank or in a supermarket or a hospital, that we all have gifts to serve the Lord and uh, that people like you are, are very welcome within the local church to serve. I think one of the sad things is a lot of people I've met who, uh, who do well professionally think that they can only serve God by giving money. But like you say, you've been given your time and using your skills to, to benefit the worldwide church, never mind the local church. Why do you think that is, Jeremy? Why do you think so many people uh, exclude themselves from serving the church other than through giving? I think we have a wrong view of the church. I think we've professionalised the church. So we think, you know, everybody sits and kind of consumes stuff which the pastor produces. Um, and, yeah, I'm all in favour of supporting the pastor, but God God calls us all, right? The Great Commission isn't only for pastors, it's for everybody to, to all make disciples. And God's given us in the body of Christ different gifts and we must all we must all help and work together. Mm. I think that's particularly true in for evangelism. I think it's actually quite difficult for pastors to evangelize because they have typically have relatively few non-Christian friends. You're maybe an example, uh, you know, an example of the of the opposite to that. 
But um, for, for the average person in a supermarket or a hospital, God's made us his ambassadors. We're, we're from the country of the kingdom of heaven, but we're in the hospital, we're in the shop, we're in the factory, wherever it is. And God's put us there. We have access to those countries, those places that a pastor doesn't have. Hmm. And, and again, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware you were ill until I met you in person. We'd engaged a couple of times uh, on the phone over social media, and 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 then we met. And, and I was just really encouraged by uh, how you use your time. It's <laughs> I can't imagine how busy you were as a banker, but <laughs> you, you seem very busy now. Are you working more, or are you working less? You, you said yeah, I give up work, but you seem busier than ever. Yeah, I am in, maybe my wife would say too busy at times, but yeah, I feel because time is short, I feel it's imperative to do what I can, either to tell people about the Lord or to help my fellow Christians. You know, Jesus said, um, we must work while it's day because the night comes when no one can work. So the night is death and it's too late then to do lots of good stuff. So let's go on with it now. And I feel, okay, maybe I've only got a year or so or two years, who knows, I don't know. As my kids like to joke, I'm well past my sell-by date already. If I didn't preach, I would have been thrown away. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just, and if people ask me for help here, and I love to, I love to try and do that. And um, I have a particular interest, maybe partly because of my upbringing, in, in trying to bring church, you know, support churches in, in places where it's tough. And there are, there are relatively few evangelical churches. That's something I, I definitely feel strongly that there's a, just a disproportionate allocation you know that there's places like oxford and cambridge and london where there's lots and lots of churches i'm not saying we can't have more but there are lots already and then there are other places as you know better than anyone in the uk where there's hardly any and surely the christians like me in the wealthy areas can help the christians in the deprived areas it's just kind of common sense it seems to me and, and that is that is great for somebody like me to hear to, to hear somebody who's a, a more privileged background in an area uh, where, where churches are plenty with a heart to serve churches in an area like Middlesbrough and in the north of England where not only are the churches uh, less affluent but the less in number. It's encouraging to see people who are wanting to help us. Now, the problem for me was over the last year or so I've met quite a few people like you, Jeremy, who have a heart for churches like ours. But for 10 years prior to that, <laughs> I didn't know anybody. So there's a problem with there's churches that need support and there's people who want to help. But how how are these people meant to meet one another? Because uh, for me, it's been a long time of networking before I've managed to find people like you. Uh, and, and there was a lot of struggles until I found support. So how can we help uh, match up churches in need with people who want to serve these churches yeah i think what we need in we, we you know individuals obviously can find individuals but that takes a lot of time and effort so we need some kind of umbrella or networks if you like now on the giving side there, there are a number um stewardship would, would be the place i would start i'm a trustee there stewardship is 110 years old it was originally brethren it's always been totally evangelical and stewardship is about promoting generosity promoting giving encouraging christians to support a whole range of stuff including deprived areas we've got stewardship's got a church planting kit it's got a guy called john keskis who's excellent in helping churches plant and churches in deprived areas he's a geordie as well like my mother so that's good <laughs> and um 
yeah, if you've got questions about your finances or about how do I start a charity or all of that really basic stuff, then go to Stewardship and the website is very easy to navigate. And if you're not sure, just, just ask them a question. So Stewardship is quite a big organisation. Um, and then there are lots of groups of Christian philanthropists. There's something called Gospel Patrons, um, which uh, is a kind of network of Christians encouraging giving. Um, and also we, we're trying to promote teaching in. I think one, one reason that we have this problem is that the, the, the Bible isn't really properly taught in this area and encouraging Christians to be generous, encouraging Christians to support churches in deprived areas. <coughs> so a group of us, including me, just brought out a book a few, few months ago called The Generosity Project, which is co-authored by Tony Payne. Maybe some of your listeners have heard of him, The Trellis and the Vine. He's an Australian guy. And it's got great Bible teaching from people like um, John Stevens and others. So again, and say for if anybody wants a free copy, just, just ask me and I'll I'll send you one. Free is always good, right? <laughs> um, I think the challenge for donors, though, on the other side of the fence, if you like, is that it's the, the evangelical scene is very fragmented. And, you know, I appreciate people believe in the local church and that's great and 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 you know lots of people i think of our dear friend steve neal the word independent doesn't begin to describe it right <laughs> they like to do their own thing which is which is great but it would help donors if there's some kind of network or a certain, even a loose association of churches and deprived areas but the reason is otherwise it's just very confusing mm. you get lots and lots of requests from churches for funding which in, in a way sound good but it's very hard then to distinguish what's good what's bad you know we, we've all uh, we've all seen this in I'm sure where someone says you know there's no gospel church in this area mm. and uh, we'd like to start one and it all sounds good and then you do a bit of research and you discover there's one two miles away and then yeah. you call them up and say oh, they say, oh yeah but that wasn't you know that's a different denomination or something so yeah we just need a bit of wisdom as donors in in knowing who, who do we work with so something like 20 schemes in Scotland is really helpful in that respect. It gives you some kind of framework within which to work. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why we started Medhurst Ministries, was to try and uh, gather together local churches in the north of England. And since setting up, I, I've, I've noticed in America, they're doing things really well. There's an organisation called the Creek Collective, and uh, there's also another organisation called the Surge Network, and we've got Denier Pierre coming on in a few weeks' time to, to share about both the Creek Collective and the Surge Network. But what is encouraging about the Surge, uh, the Surge Network is that's a collection of local churches. It's not a charity, uh, and, and it's not a singular church. It, it's, a, it's a group of churches working together uh, to provide funding, training, resources, and, and support the pastors. So, yeah, we, we are hoping that through Medhurst Ministries we can develop something similar to that. Because not only is a network helpful for, for funders to direct funding, but it's also helpful for pastors to be part of a network of support of like-minded uh, churches. But also because we want to be generous ourselves, although we don't have a little, we still have lots to give. We might not have finances, but we've got skills and expertise that we can share with, with other churches. So uh, we, again, are still wanting to preach to the less affluent churches that we need to be generous with our gifts uh, uh, as well as the more affluent churches. So, uh, Nathan, 
I've spent the last 10 or so years trying to network and raise funding. Hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll be stepping aside and you'll be taking over the mantle and it'll be all down to you. So is there anything that, that you would find it interesting or helpful for your role as a, as a, as a new pastor starting on this journey of, of building up financial support? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting hearing from from Jeremy his perspective from the other side of kind of having, you know, so many, you, you hear about so many needs, kind of what is it, I guess, that you're looking for um, when you're kind of, when, when you're seeing all of these applications for funding or, or people looking for support, um, like what would be helpful from our side for you to know um, what are the things that, that you're looking for? Yeah, definitely validation from local, other local churches in the area. That's absolutely essential. Then, you know, like Steve Neal is supporting his buddy, um, Steve Watkinson in Rochdale. And um, that, you know, rather than just starting on your own churches nearby, support it. That That's absolutely vital. Um, I think, secondly, you know, what the person wants the money for. Um, we'll maybe come on to buildings and Kingdom Bank in a minute. But I think the easiest thing to raise money for is people. And that's also because people give to people. Uh, training is also a good thing. People are, you know, very motivated to support training. Not, not that you can't do other things. Um, I think maybe ten years ago, people were only interested in church planting, and now they realise that's a bit kind of one, you know, myopic. Um, and that um, church revitalisation, which is kind of the same thing, if a church has got on its last legs and it's being resuscitated, there's no big difference. In some ways, maybe it's even better than a church plant. Um, I think people also want to see the the, the track record of the people involved um, that yeah there's some um, yeah people with some with some experience of, of doing this kind of thing if, if, if that's possible um, and then I guess um, yeah especially that this is this is true Nathan for trusts I mean we're, I'm obviously an individual there's three sources of money really there's individuals there's trusts and there's churches and there are quite a few trusts who do fund stuff, but they typically want to fund for a certain period of time. So for two, three years. So, you know, for sort of seed capital, if you like, to get the thing up and running, um, rather than just saying, you know, I'll support it forevermore. I think the other thing is then, and I, we appreciate that, you know, resources are limited in, in deprived areas, but that the, the, the people in the church, to the best of their ability, are putting some money in. That's, that's important too, yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be on a, you know, the widow's might principle, right? Because if people on the ground who are engaged in the church won't even give a small amount, then you, you've got to say, well, why should, why should you as an outsider, you know, give, give, give some money in? Um, yeah, I mean, there's other things. But the, the key thing, I think, is people give to people, it, relationships, right? That, that's, that's the most important thing in fundraising. So if you're the pastor and, and you know, you're, you're, you're looking to build relationships with people, that also takes time. I think people don't always appreciate it funnily enough where it's like, hi, I'm, I'm Nathan and please give me some money. Right. Mm. You know, people, people, which is a bit what Ian was touching on before, that Christians maybe have more to offer than just money. So it's about a partnership. It's about a relationship. People realize you're asking for money. That's OK but that it's just not a kind of transactional thing. There's a, there's a long-term partnership here, which is, I think, what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you know, the p- partnership between the Macedonians 
the Corinthians and the church in Jerusalem. Yeah, thanks. That's that's really helpful. There's lots of uh, lots of things that you've touched on there. And yeah, in terms of partnerships, and um, I, I think that's interesting what you said that like ten years ago people wanted to back church planting, and now people are more open to to a broader range of things. I wonder whether that's whether part of that is because people have have seen that church planting isn't always the kind of the great investment that it might seem to be. I, I wonder whether maybe maybe I'm being cynical, but do you think there might be part of it that's that that people ten years ago were giving to church planting, thinking we'll give for two or three years and then we'll see a church started and then they'll be able to go and plant more. And is the problem that that hasn't quite happened that way? I think so. I think it's really important to be truthful, also, you know, and and, and that it will take a lot, lot longer in planting in deprived areas than in wealthy areas. I mean. I'm quite friendly with Richard Cokin and Co Mission in London, and they found that, you know, they started in southwest London, which is the wealthiest part of London. And then they've started in other areas like southeast London, and it just takes much, much longer because if you gather a church of 30, 40 people in, you know, Putney or Richmond or Wimbledon, then they're going to be up and running. There's easily enough money and also know how, right? You're going to have accountants, lawyers, and stuff, and you, you can be self propelled in a, you know, three, four years. That doesn't happen in poor areas. You need many, many more people to get enough money and people don't have the same skills, right? So you're going to need more outside help and even more so in deprived areas. So just be realistic, right? If it takes 10 years, it takes 10 years. Yeah, and, and also be honest about your failings and difficulties, right? If there are big problems and stuff, that's okay, right? Paul's very truthful, isn't he, in, in, when he writes. And I think that's a, you know, God bless America. I love America, but Americans are very fixated on this everything must be success oriented everything is numbers oriented a bit like the way you run a business but the church isn't a business business can help the church but the church isn't running a business not least because if it was we wouldn't plant churches in deprived areas right we do it all in wealthy student areas but that's not god's model and we, we just have to be honest that it takes a lot longer in deprived areas and that's, that's okay I'm, I'm glad you're not too disillusioned by it then jeremy <laughs> No, look, it's um, we have to be patient. I think one of the main qualities that God calls us to have is patience. Um, God himself is very patient, but we're very impatient. And I think both with personal evangelism and also with churches, if something doesn't work immediately, we're just tempted to give up. That's fortunately God doesn't work on that basis, does he? Imagine if he did. Imagine if, you know, Nathan, Ian and Jeremy had heard the gospel once and hadn't responded. God said, well, they've had their chance on to the next. No, God is very, very patient. And so must we be. And if something's worth doing and we believe in it, then it just it just takes a long time. It takes a long time. But my father used to say this. People, He used to joke that people would come into his church after he'd been there 40 odd years and they'd look around and say, is that all the people you've got after 40 years? So he used to love to quote. You, you, have you guys heard of Thomas Boston, right? The, the 18th century writer. He was a minister in a church. He'd been, he went through a very, very hard time in his life. He lost nearly all his children. His wife was, yeah, I guess you'd say permanently mentally scarred by that. Anyway, one day a friend of his wrote to complain to him that he only had 20 people in his congregation, to which Boston rather acerbically replied, you'll find that more than enough to give account for on the day of judgment. <laughs> So maybe we should watch out if we've got a large church. <laughs> yeah. And again, 
what what you said there about churches starting off in places like Putney and Richmond and more affluent areas generally have a, a congregation uh, with skilled professionals who can help with things like accountancy, which frees the pastor up to do more evangelism or, or preaching. Whereas for me, we had to set the charity up. We had to manage the accounts. Uh, everything fell on my shoulders. So as I've been planting, trying to reach the community and then train staff to take over from me, that's been quite a stressful uh, a stressful period of, of, of church planting for me. I feel that at least three years, was not wasted, but was uh, invested in training up others to, to 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 free my time up. Whereas, when you tell people who you're looking for support from, what we've we done for the last three years, how many people have been baptized, how many people have made professions of faith, uh, if you say just a very small number, but I've trained up free staff, is that something that interests funders, or is it? Is definitely, it the numbers? No, definitely in. I think this training aspect is really people really like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, we again we we must be truthful. We can't tell lies about how many. If only three or four people have been converted, that's that's okay. Yeah. And if we look at the early church, it grew also very slowly but steadily. Yeah. There's a there's a good banking thing in which is called the rule of seventy two. Have you guys ever heard of that? No, no. So if you take seventy two and you divide a, a number into it. At that, at that annual growth rate, that's the time uh, that, 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 that the number will double. So what do I mean? For example, if you say, well, we just add, we'll just add three people per, per year to our congregation, right? 3%, let's say we got 100 people and we, we just add three people, which is not very many. But that means in about 20, 24 years, um, the, the, the congregation will double. That's the power of compounding, right? And that's what happened in the early church. There weren't like spectacular revivals, but steadily, steadily, by the way, not so much by pastors, just by ordinary people spreading their faith, the church grew and grew. So no, it's it's fine if you're training and, and that, that's actually a bigger thing than, than conversions. That's okay. That's okay. Just just be honest. Be honest. You know, what Oliver Cromwell said to someone, paint me warts and all. So when we're talking about planting in deprived areas, we must paint the picture warts and all. Yeah. That, that's that's something I've been accused of doing too much, being too honest and and painting a, a, a drab picture. And it's hard, isn't it, to get the balance because you don't want to come across that you are working in an area where there'll never be any fruit or that you uh, won't see any growth because funders will think that they're just putting the money down the drain. But neither do you want to be exaggerating and... Uh, yeah, trying to attract funders through. Uh, I, I think. I think. Look, funders are about providing seed capital, right? But for for things that won't generate money for themselves. If you've got a big church in, let's say, Oxford or Cambridge or something, and God bless those churches. I'm not against them. They're amazing churches, right? And they're planting more churches in the area or outside. They can do that themselves, right? Mm. They don't need outside help. And look at commission. I mean, that's amazing what Richard Cokin's done there. And it becomes, after a while, it becomes self-sustaining. But investors can see, look, in Middlesbrough, Oldham, you know, other places in the north, that's never going to happen. Mm. The, the, what Adrian Reynolds calls the strawberry runner effect, where strawberries will, runners will just keep growing and growing. That's going to take thousands of years until we get from Cambridge to Middlesbrough. That's a long old way, right? 
So therefore, what you're asking for is seed capital. And people understand that. That's absolutely fine. What we're seeing through, I mentioned earlier, the Surgeon Network and uh, the Creek Collective, and a friend of mine, John Unwuchekwa, who we were chatting to from Atlanta last year, is they have entrepreneurs within their church that are setting up businesses in the local community. They're living in the community. They're setting up businesses. They're employing the local community. And so that brings finance to the church, but also to, to the economy of, of the local community. And that's yeah. something that I'd love to see in the north of England. We have some of the cheapest housing in the country. It, it, what I'm trying to, to, to develop is to encourage people to invest in buying buildings. So if a church was donated a building that we could rent out, that would be one gift given by a, a, a funder, but that would be sustainable income. So there is new... There is different models that we could look at. How could we encourage partnerships with funders to think about an investment that will not just be short term, but will be a continuous stream? Yeah, I think that's right, Ian. I think also it's good to distinguish between different types of support, right? Mm. Because we tend to think only of, please give me money, I'm a charity. But we can also say, please lend me money yeah. and I'll pay you back, right? And please buy, buy a building and it's your building and we'll, we'll, we'll use it. And that's where Kingdom Bank and, and stewardship can come in, actually. Mm -hmm. So both Kingdom Bank and stewardship lend money all over the UK to churches and um, also lend money to for churches, not just for the buildings, but also for other things like you described, for housing, for pastors, for church workers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, the, the advantage of doing that is that the money gets recycled, right? One problem for donors is you give the money to a church in X and it's gone, right? They're not, you don't want to give it back to you or unlikely to. But if you invest in a building, you've still got the building and um, eventually the church will repay you or the business activity will repay you and then you can redeploy it elsewhere. So that's why a group of, of us, um, which is stewardship with 35% and then a group, about half a dozen of us with the other 65% bought Kingdom Bank, uh, which actually started, funnily enough, as a church for the assembly, as a bank for the assemblies of God, where the church, the wealthy churches and assemblies of God helped the poorer churches in the assemblies of God. Um, and over time it became a bank. And then, yeah, we, we want to expand it out. So just look at the website, Kingdom Bank or stewardship. Um, Kingdom Bank is able to do a broader range of things because it's a bank and it can lend money to individuals or to companies mm -hmm. um, secured by property, which um, which stewardship can't. But stewardship as a charity can maybe be a bit more flexible in some um, in some deprived areas. So yeah, that's another way of getting money. A third way is um, get people to give you interest-free loans. I've done that quite a few times with pastors. I've got a pastor at the moment actually. Um, who's got a, a business venture that he's thinking of doing, and I'm thinking of lending him yeah, money on an interest-free basis, and he can pay me back, and he can generate some income off that on the side. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe that's a kind of mindset also shift, which is good, Ian, rather than, oh, it, it's fine to say I need some money, but yeah. but also to say I have a business idea. This, this guy's thinking of, you know, he's, he's got some property, and he's thinking of redeveloping it, and... Um, yeah, making a kind of Airbnb out of it and then using that income, you know, to uh, to, to support him and the church. Great. Yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways to do that. And if people need help, yeah, how do I do that? Just just ask. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you've, you've, you've shared a bit about uh, the early years, uh, your professional years, and now 
what 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 you're doing uh, with philanthropy. Uh, obviously, we've we've heard of the benefits that the churches and pastors and gospel workers have through the work that you're doing. But what are the benefits and what are the pleasure that you receive from this type of work? Oh yeah, you get far more back in, far far more back as a as a donor and a supporter than 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 you than you give. And the example I would give would be the people I've been supporting in Eastern Europe for fifty years, um, since I was a small boy and went out there with my father. So I'm still in touch with a number of them, and their 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 gospel heartedness and and the power of the work of the Holy Spirit in those places is amazing. It's like being in the Book of Acts sometimes. And that's a kind of rebuke to us, I think, where we live, we live by sight, if you like, and they live by faith. And it's inspiring to go to, yeah, Ukraine, Russia, Serbia, Romania, and see these dear brothers and sisters with nothing but living so faithfully. And it can be the same. I'm talking here to if there's anybody listening who's got, you know, who's got money and resources. It can be the same in the UK as well. That when you partner with people, you get far more back. That's what Jesus said, right? It's much more blessed to give than to receive. You get 10 times more blessing giving than receiving. And it's also fun, right? It's interesting. And the kind of businessman side of me comes out there. It's interesting to try and help people. And sometimes it doesn't work and that's okay. So I, I think that kind of, I, I like that kind of entrepreneurialism in, for example, in what you're doing with Medhurst Ministries and other things. That's a good quality. And one where as a giver, you can, you can help, right? And you, you also don't need to do the hard work. You can just do the fun bits, right? You can let you and Nathan, you know, do all the stuff you do and just rock up every six months or a year and have a little video and stuff. That's the fun bit. So, yeah, it's if, if you're listening and you're thinking, why should I get involved in this? Because it's fun, right? And it, it's fun is a, maybe a, a, a way of expressing the word blessing, right? It makes you happy to, to help people. I've, I've found that anyway over my life. And um, I think I think other Christians are seeing that more and more too. I think I think that's, sorry, there for God. No, I, th- I think that's that's a, a really refreshing way to think of it, especially. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's really interesting hearing the other side of it because, like you say, as pastors, we can just think, "Oh, I need money for this," and then you know, you're talking about the the blessing of giving, but then you're also seeing the the kind of more professional, the the banker side of it in terms of talking about you know, seed capital and, and stuff. Uh, I, I'm interested on on your perspective, because there's so many needs, you, you've already kind of alluded to that, you know, the the, the number of people that you hear about um, who, who need money for various things. I, I'm just curious as to what you think the, the problem is in terms of with, with generosity. Is it that there's not enough to to deal with all of these problems? When we think about, you know, all the places in the UK that need funding. And then we think about world missions that, do you know what I mean? There's so many needs. Is the problem that we just don't have the resources to do it? Or is it that people just aren't being generous enough with, with what they do have? Um, is it that the people are giving money, but it's just not being spent right? I'd be interested in, in your perspective on that. Yeah, I think the root of the problem is, which is often the root of problems in the churches, is we're not teaching the Bible. It's as simple as that, because the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about money, has twice as many verses on money as on prayer and faith combined. But yet how often do we hear sermons on money and generosity? Not at all. And I think that's partly because we're embarrassed 
we're, we're English. Maybe the Scots like men's are better. I don't know. But we're embarrassed in talking about money. And pastors don't like to preach about money because they think people will think that they're asking for a pay rise. So what do we need to do? We need to teach the Bible because it's overflowing with stuff about money. 45% of Jesus's parables are about money or, or possessions. And I think we're starting to do that. Um, so, and I think the resources are absolutely there, Nathan. They're absolutely, there's more than enough money, especially if you throw in then borrowing and other stuff. It's, it's also a, a lack of vision, maybe, I would say a, a, a risk aversion. I think we're very risk averse as conservative evangelicals. I think we're put to shame by Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters. When I look at the loan applications that come in at Kingdom Bank or stewardship, yeah, the, the, the willingness of, um, and, and these churches are often much more blue collar. They're, they're much more working class churches, Pentecostal churches. They, they're all in basically. They go, and that's, that's how, by the way, as an entrepreneur, that's how you make a lot of money. You go all in. Jeff Bezos, when he founded Amazon, he went all in. He was in a well-paid job in New York. He sold everything up and he went to Seattle and started from nothing. And now he's the wealthiest man in the world, right? That's just money, you may say. But that principle of being willing to take some risks, I think we have a lot to learn from Pentecostals and Charismatics because I think we're very risk averse. Um, and we're reluctant to try new things. I think also, but I think that's improving. Another factor has been, yeah, that we don't see the UK as a mission field. We think of it as a Christian country, which is like, you know, that's about 150, 200 years out of date. And, and we give money to missions in foreign countries, which I'm not saying stop, by the way. No, I mean, that would be terrible if we cannibalized people abroad. To, but but it, it's an obvious thing. I think denominationalism is another big factor. Where's most of the money? It's in Anglican evangelical churches. And it's hard sometimes historically to get that out. I think the gospel partnerships can be a really important thing there. If I look at the Northwest Gospel Partnership, for example, I think that's a good example of how Anglicans and nonconformist churches can work together. But yeah, for nonconformists listening to this, go go tackle the Anglicans. They've got the money, right? <laughs> Where are the big church? There are a few big nonconformist wealthy churches, but most of them are Anglicans. Yeah. And the more we can build bridges with Anglican friends and and you know just break down these these barriers i think some some churches are so particular about their denominationalism they just put everybody off you know so I, I won't mention the denominations but they're so whatever it is and unless you 100 percent subscribe to that then then that's that's silly right i mean if you you know if if we go back um yeah a couple of hundred years to wesley and whitfield there were important doctrinal issues i'm not saying we, we abandoned them between evangelicals but they they worked together they really helped each other we, we have to break down denominational barriers and support people across denominational lines and that takes time what's that about it's about relationships yeah. i think one of the challenges also is that anglicanism in the north evangelical anglicanism in the north is very weak so, yeah, the, 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 there's both a north-south and there's also an Anglican free church thing. And, and we need to over we need to overcome that. Um, a good thing that's been done is things like this. I mean, the thing that got me going about six, seven years ago on this was Steve Neal. God bless him. And he's, he's building Jerusalem. Right. I just started reading that. And uh, I thought, yeah, OK, this, this guy's an interesting character. And I, I, I went to see him which was quite an experience. And that's, that's, how I, that's how I got started, right? And I think that could be the same for other people. Invite, invite people to come and visit you. And uh, when you see someone working there, and I remember having a curry with Steve, I think it cost about £3.20 or something. <laughs> then then that, 
yeah, that, that, that the kind of penny drops, if you like, and you realize, okay, these, these are good godly brothers and sisters. They deserve our support. So my final point would be build those relationships and that takes time. Invite people to come and see you, talk to them, get to know them. Don't just be interested in their money, form that partnership like, like Paul encourages us to do in 2 Corinthians. Awesome. Uh, really appreciate your time, Jeremy. Uh, we will put some links down to to your books and and the organisations that you've uh, mentioned. Uh, but before we go, is there any any ways that we can be praying for you and uh, helping you within your ministry? I think you could pray, Ian, please, that God would raise up more people who are you know through things like gospel patrons. Um, we there's a group of about you know ten ten a dozen of us friends of mine. And sometimes we feel like, for goodness sake, you know, go and ask somebody else, right? So we need to broaden the base of people, get more people interested in, in it, more people to kind of catch the vision. I think that would be a, a, a good prayer. But I think the resources are there. Pray that God would open people's eyes to see the opportunities and, and to see the fun and to see the blessing that you're going to get. That it's, it's as a donor, it's much more fun giving than receiving. The receivers have the hard work, right? The givers have all the fun. Awesome. Oh, thanks very much, Jeremy. Uh, and, and thanks, Nathan, for joining me on this episode of the In Context podcast.